turn to 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, we've been there and haven't been able to move away from there for the last couple of Sundays. Not that we wanted to, but that's where God has us. I want to finish up from last week. We looked at the scriptures and we looked in particular at verse 4. And we're drawing the contrast between a believer on parade and a believer engaged in battle. We're either, if you're saved, if you have repented toward God here this morning and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're one of the two. Either a believer on parade or a believer engaged in the battle. One or the other. Just because you're on parade doesn't mean you're not a believer. We talked about it last week. Our surrender to the Lord does not secure our salvation. It may give evidence of it, but it does not secure it. Our salvation was secured by Jesus' surrender to the will of His Father. He did that on our behalf. And so therefore, when He calls us to salvation, he, we, He's calling us to believe and receive and participate in work already done. Already done. My devotion to Christ does not, does not save me, nor does yours. Christ's devotion to the will of the Father and the faith to believe in what He did on our behalf is what saves us. There's an eternal difference between those two. But yet he, he issues this call, and we're going to talk more about it in the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to go into a series of messages on the tabernacle, God willing. But we're going to, he gives us this call as a believer. After having dressed us and clothed us in his righteousness, he leaves us on this earth, and he issues this call to not just be a believer on parade, dressed up in all the pomp and circumstance and all the shiny uniform, but he issues this call for us to get engaged in the battle. And we draw a contrast, or we made comparisons last week between what it means to be a believer on parade and what it means to believe be a believer engaged in the battle. So we're going to look at these verses um, this morning, and then God willing, we'll move on um, after this into the reason for surrender, the biblical reason for surrender. Now let's look at Second Timothy chapter two. We're going to be looking at verses one through four. And if you're physically able, will you stand with me as I read? from the word of the living God, will you? In reverence and respect for His holy word, we'll begin 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Please be seated. Thank you for standing. We talked about last week in drawing these contrasts and looking at the difference between a believer on parade and a believer engaged. An engaged believer, in summary... There's some things that about his life that make it profoundly different between one who's just on parade. We talked about the expectations. An engaged believer expects hardship. An engaged believer is not derailed by hardship. An engaged believer doesn't give in to discouragement that is accompanied by hardship. He may get discouraged, but he doesn't stay there. Why? Because he's strong in grace. 
That's why he said that at the beginning of the chapter. You therefore, my son, be strong in grace. We made the point last week that the same grace that it takes to be saved is the same grace that it takes to serve. Salvation is unmerited favor and so is service. It doesn't deserve commendation. It's reasonable service in light of what happened at the cross. It's not exceptional. It's reasonable. And the same grace it took to purchase us is the same grace it takes for us to live a holy life and serve God. It's unmerited favor. And so he said, you better grow strong in grace because if you don't, you'll misinterpret what's going on in your life. And when their difficulty comes, you'll begin to resent the difficulty and the God who's sovereign over it rather than accepting it as a method by which He transforms you into the image of His Son. And so He says, okay, the expectation of a believer on the parade, on engaged, is there's going to be hardship. I'm not going to go through all these again, but I'm going to summarize them because we didn't finish them last week. A believer engaged can also expect this, that his provision is taken care of by the sovereign. Nobody in the United States Army, Jeff just got back from the Republic of Georgia and serves faithfully in the military and the Army. We're proud of him and his service there. Many others in this fellowship have served or are serving. They didn't ask Jeff to go out and buy his clothes. They didn't ask Jeff to go out and provide for his food and for all the things he needs to do his job. They're provided for by the government. G.I. Government issued. Well, a believer engaged could expect God's provision. And instead of government issued, it's God issued. Our equipment, our armor, our provision, the necessary finances we need and everything else we can need, we can expect from God that He'll take care of. The, 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 the engaged believer, as opposed to the one who is on parade, also recognizes authority. And we talked about that. And we looked at the Scriptures and the authority of the church. Christ is the head. Then He sets over shepherds pastors to uh, act out and manifest his authority in the church. Then we looked at home authority and we looked at the children to be submissive and honor their father and mother, for the wife to be submissive to the husband, and the husband in holy fear to love his wife the way Christ loved the church, recognizing that his boss is Jesus. And we looked at that. Any army that's going to win has to be peopled by soldiers who recognize and submit to authority. Because if we don't do that, people get killed. It's just that simple. You get in the middle of the warfare and nobody, nobody is the recognized leader and people are vying for leadership that shouldn't have it. And while they're in there fussing and messing and gomming, trying to figure out who the leader is, the enemy is firing and taking advantage of the breach and people get killed. We also talked about teamwork, that we need to be unified and come together. We need to look out for the needs of others as much as we look out for our own needs. And we talked about how that we need to speak with one mind and one voice the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talked about the fact that there's only one identifying mark in the Scriptures that identifies us as disciples of Jesus Christ, and that is that we have love for one another. That is that we have love for one another. Oh, my prayer for this fellowship would be that when somebody walks into the influence of this fellowship, whether it's where we're meeting collectively or whether it's in your home or my home, they'll be able to walk away from that and say, there's some love here that I haven't experienced other places. I'm not talking about filio. Filio, the Qantas Club, does that. I'm talking about agape, where people are willing to lay down their lives for the spiritual benefit of others. Death to myself. Denial of self so that I can serve and love others. I can put away my pride. I can put away my prejudices. I can put away even my right 
for love to be reciprocated, to be given back because I'm serving somebody and fueled by a love that's unconditional and therefore I can love whether you love me or not in return. Teamwork, authority, provision, expectations. Everybody plays a part. Nobody's unnecessary. You're all called. We are all called into the body of Christ and we all have gifts, spiritual gifts that God has endowed us with and given to every believer and they're to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. And every gift matters and every member of the body of Christ matters. No one gift is more important than the other. Some gifts are out loud and can be seen and some are subtle underneath the radar screen and can't be seen. But it doesn't matter. And there's everything in between, but it doesn't matter because they're all important. They're all necessary. They all glorify and honor God. He put us together. He just flat did it. And then communication, and we talked about that, and we used John as an example of how his radio man in Vietnam was right by his side, and they forged a very close relationship with one another because they needed to be able to talk to command in order to know what to do and where the enemy's moving or call in for support or air power or whatever they might need. His radio man was very important. We talked about the need for communication in the body of Christ and how the sovereign God of this universe is the one who knows everything, and He's the one we appeal to. And the communication that unites us and causes our opinions to be trumped is this, the Word of God. We talked about prayer and how the disciples asked Jesus to do one thing, to show them one thing, to teach them one thing. And you recall what it was in Luke 11, chapter 1. He said, Lord, teach us to pray. Amazing, isn't it? That in the Bible, of all the things that Jesus did, they would ask to be taught how to pray. Because they knew that everything he did grew out of his prayers. They knew that was the source of his strength. And then we talked about the fact that we can the expectations are going to be hard. Provision to be taken care of by the sovereignty. We need to submit to God-given authorities in our life. Otherwise... People get killed. We need to work as a team and come together and be unified. Speak with one voice and one mind and love one another. Everybody plays their part. Everybody is necessary. So we need to encourage one another. Show up for duty. Do your part. It doesn't matter if people see it or not. As a matter of fact, God probably garners His greatest glory by things that are not seen by men. And our motives are most pure when maybe they're not seen. And communication, and we talked about the fact that we need to be able to talk to our sovereign, and we talked about Romans ten seventeen, where it says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And then we talked about the fact that you must believe in who you're serving, and you must be convinced there's a cause to die for. Who enlists in the United States military today in frontline infantry, like Nathaniel has done, without knowing, and maybe not being said out loud, but knowing that you're getting into something that could cost you your life. That that's a very real possibility. Well, let me tell you this. In the Christian life, for engaged believers, it is a reality. It will cost you your life. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. God's not expecting for you and I to emulate Him. He's expecting us to die so that He can resurrect Himself through us 
and deny our rights and even put them aside sometimes for weaker brothers. And we went into that and talked about that last week. And we looked at Acts 21 where the Apostle Paul was going to go to Jerusalem. And a prophetess, uh, a prophet, stood up in front of him and said, and took his belt from him and said, The man who wears this belt, and he wrapped it around himself, the man who wears this belt is going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to be brought up before and with charges uh, and arrested. He's going to get himself in trouble. And everybody was so scared and said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. What was Paul's response? You're grieving me by your attitude. Because I'm not willing, not I'm willing not only to go to Jerusalem, but I'm willing to die for my sovereign Lord because my sovereign Lord died for me. We've got to be convinced as engaged believers that there's a cause worth dying for. And brothers and sisters, friends, the gospel is a cause worth dying for. Jesus did die for it. He purchased it. Our death doesn't add or take away from that. But it's often that we're called upon to die so that that gospel message and the one who did die on the cross is clearly seen in the lives of those who are no longer protecting their lives or their prejudices or their rights, but are laying them down just as surely as He did. We've got to be convinced of that. And i tell you this. We're going to go to this one and then we're going to do the Lord's Supper. A believer that is engaged can, expects hardship. It just expects it. A believer engaged can count on God's provision. God issued equipment. A believer that is engaged submits to authority. A believer that is engaged works as a team and longs for unity and voice and witness because disunity takes away from the message. A believer who's engaged knows that their part is necessary. And whether they're a cook or a general, it matters not. Everybody's necessary. He doesn't rail or debate or get upset about the part they play. They just play their part because they're serving Him and not themselves. An engaged believer is in communication constantly with the sovereign because he knows if we lose the communication or there's a breach of communication, people get killed. Then a believer engaged but must believe and go into it believing that there's something worth dying for and that's the gospel. And goes into it knowing that there's no speculation as to whether or not this will kill you. It is guaranteed it will kill you. But it's encouraged by the fact that on the other side of, of a cross is resurrection. Brand new life. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to live and represent Him. And that also the believer, we talked about it, can expect that the uniform. There's nothing wrong with the uniform. And Jeff can tell us this, and John can give us witness of this, of the millions of dollars that our military spends, and rightfully so, to make sure that our military is the best equipped military on planet Earth. But you don't know whether or not the equipment is what it is until you get to war. Then you find out. The rest of it is just theory. But when it actually happens... And you find out, wow, that did work the way it was supposed to work. And when God engages us, what do we have? We have the best clothing available. We have the belt of righteousness. We have the breastplate, I mean the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have our head put on the head, the helmet of salvation. We have the sword, which is the word of the living God, and we have the shield of faith. And every one of those weapons are tried, tested, and true. The Bible says in Proverbs 30, verse 5, 
Every word of the Lord is pure. And He is a shield to those who put his trust, their trust in Him. That word pure means tested. Every bit of it has been tested. And it's come out sparkling in gold. Forged in the fire of adversity, misunderstanding, and everything else that the devil and the, angel and the devils of hell could throw against it. And what does God come forth? He comes forth and calls forth His Son out of the tomb and shames every last one of them. Not with a sword, but with a cross. Praise His glorious name forever. And there's nothing wrong with our uniform, buddy. I can promise you that. It's been tested and tried, not in a laboratory, but in real life. And it's come forth just like God said it would. And here's the one today. I've been through all of that and think, well, okay, let's go to some new stuff. Well, here it is. Let's go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 29 through 31. Acts chapter 20. Just make a couple of comments here and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper. A couple of observations. Man, the setting is the Apostle Paul is uh, has a meeting here with the Ephesian elders, and he's about to part company with them. And it's a very emotional time because he loved them deeply, and they deeply loved him. And he has some parting words for them. We talked about this last week, and I can't remember who it was I was talking with. I think it might have been Joe that um, we were reflected on the fact. And you've heard it said before that. Um, Nobody that I know of has ever had a deathbed confession that said, gee, I wish I spent more time at the office. You'll never hear that. Gee, I wish I'd have spent more time. And you fill in the blank. Wife, kids, in prayer, devotion to Christ. It's all of those things. It's never more time at the office. Well, I'll assure you, when you're about to leave someone that you've invested in your life in and put your life on the line for, and you've got parting words for them, you don't mince words. You just don't make up something. You make sure that whatever i got to say is important because i got a limited amount of time to say it. And I want the last thing I leave them with to be weighty and something they can use. So he wasn't just fiddling around here when he was talking to them. Look what he said to them. He said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, look at this word, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. The Apostle Paul says this, Error, false teaching, is going to enter your fellowship. It will come from without, but it will also come from within. And I warned you day and night that that was going to happen. Be watchful. Be watchful is the charge. Watch what you're doing. You know why? Because the trust that's been in the guard, the trust that was entrusted to them, was none other than the gospel itself. Have we ever come to a day? Let me ask you a question. Have we ever come to a day? And, and, and those of us who are old enough to say this, have we ever come to a day at a point in time where right is wrong? And wrong is right than we do today. We justify every kind of sin that there possibly is. I'll give you an extreme example. Just in the past week, one of the managing editors for CNN over their international bureau in the Middle East did a tweet on her Twitter account. Is that what you call it? 
You go to tweeting? Is that what it is? Okay. Twitter. Okay, call it Twitter. Do you when you put something on there, Eric, are you tweeting? Is that what you call it though? Okay. You she's heard it from somebody else. And me too. That's how I heard it too, Eric. Okay. So you do a little tweet on there. Recently a, a, a founding member of Hezbollah died. You know who Hezbollah is? Who does who knows who Hezbollah is? Who is it, Nancy? Do you know? Huh? Yeah, and it's a terrorist organization. They're terrorists. It's exactly the same as Al Qaeda. Exactly. Exactly. Kill innocent people. Encourage people to strap bombs to themselves and go into a crowded marketplace and kill themselves and people around them. And would even do that to children. And one of the managing editors of CNN and their Middle East Bureau tweeted and mourned the passing of a great man like the leader of Hezbollah. He is a wicked, thug, murderer, and even CNN fired her for that. I'm surprised CNN fired her, but even CNN fired her for that. Right is now wrong, and wrong is now right. That's been perverted and mixed up and turned topsy-turvy. This past week I watched on Larry King, when Larry King interviewed Benjamin Netanyahu. Do anybody know who he is? He's the Prime Minister of Israel. All of history, with what's going on right now and what's going on throughout the world hinges and turns on that little spot in the Middle East called Israel. What's happening to California and Arnold Schwarzenegger might be important, but it does not impact history like redemptive history like the little spot called Israel. And I listen as Larry King demeaned and talked to him as if he were a second-rate leader of a city outside in Iceland and chided him for trying to protect their borders and chided him for trying to protect their people and faulted him for not entering into the peace process with the, with the Palestinians who are led by Hezbollah who don't want peace with Israel. They want Israel wiped off the map. And what I'm saying is right has become wrong and wrong has become right. And all of this in our country, in the perverse, the perverted thinking, one of the ways that Barack Obama got elected to President of the United States is because of the vote of professing evangelicals. God help us if our discernment is that low. God help us. God help us. It doesn't matter anymore what we believe. It doesn't matter. You know why? Because pastors and church leaders have not been watchful. It, that's the charge of a believer who is on engaged in the battle. He is not asleep on the wall. He does not slumber. Let me ask you this, and John can just nod to this, and I, I don't want to try to embarrass him or call him out or anything like that, but I would suspect if y'all camp somewhere in the middle of the brush or somewhere and you fortified a place in the area, you set up watch, right, John? And what would be the quickest way to get your eat, lunch eaten is to, is to fall asleep and watch. Isn't that true? Because what happens is, if anybody falls asleep while they're watching, the people that they're trusted to watch can easily get killed. And we've fallen asleep at the wheel in the church of the living God, and we've let just about everything in the church. And because of that, we have no discernment anymore. We can't tell the difference between right and wrong, left and right, up or down. We have no, no appreciation for the Scriptures. We've lost it all. I'll give you a current example. This is another example. 
These are, these are extreme examples to prove a point. This past week, I was on my way to a lunch appointment. And I was pulling off on Sandy Plains Road. And when I pulled off on Sandy Plains Road, there's a, I forgot the name of the road. It might be Trickham. Trickham. There's a CVS store on the corner of Trickham and Sandy Plains. And when you turn left to go, and I was going to Woodstock's where I was going, and just immediately on your left is a Mormon building. I'm not going to call it a church, but it's a building. It's where Mormons meet. It's a Mormon building. And I was on there, and I looked over to the, to the left, and I verified it even just this morning to make sure that the other Mormon building that's over here near us is the same thing. But they have a what looks like normally on a, on a church building. And this is not a church, but they're building a steeple. And up at the very top of it, you know what's at the very top of it? Have you ever noticed? Next time you go by a Mormon building, notice this. Not a Mormon church, a Mormon building. Up at the top of their um, edifice is a point. It's just a point, just like that. It's just a point. And that point makes a point. You know what the point is? The point is that the cross is not necessary for salvation. That's the point. Now let's tease that out for a minute. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Think this through with me just a minute. The Son of the living God, in response to the will of the Father that was given Him before you and I ever came out of the womb, submitted to the Father's will and came down here and did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, even though He is God. He stripped Himself of His rights as God, didn't become didn't quit being God, but stripped himself of his rights as being God, was born of the Virgin Mary, and lived a sinless, perfect life for 33 years on this earth. And after that 33 years on earth, he was falsely accused by the very people that he loved so much and came and died for. They turned their back on him and betrayed him. Even one of the twelve that he invested in betrayed him with a kiss and 30 pieces of silver. They bring him before a sham tribunal, they turned him over to the Roman authority who didn't want anything to do with him and finally convinced the Roman authority to offer up a thug, an insurrectionist, and a murderer in his place and offered him up on the cross, stripped him, beat him naked, plucked his beard out, put a crown of thorns on his head, beat him within eyelash of his, eyelash of his life, put a cross on his back, made him carry it outside to a trash heap outside the streets of Jerusalem, laid him on that cross, he willingly submitted to the Father and nailed him to it and stripped him naked and put him up at a prominent place in shame and disgrace as a common criminal. And he did that to die in our place. And for anyone to say that God would look down from heaven and say, you can either come to me through the brutal, Death and murder of my son are just try to be good. Take your pick. Is rank and file heresy. If there is another way to God besides the substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial death and burial and resurrection of His Son, if there is another way to Him besides that way, then God is a tyrant and a brute to do that to His Son. There is no other way. That point up there makes a point. And it's this. That's the church of Satan. And Satan hates the cross. 
And you would too if you were him. Because at that place marked his defeat. And the last thing that he wants anybody to know about or submit to or believe in is the cross of Jesus Christ. Evangelical leaders now are so reckless with their leadership. They are so loose with their alliances. Just the other day I was watching, and many of you watching, but just be guarded about this. But you watch Glenn Beck, and I know you do. But I want you to know that Glenn Beck is a Mormon. And just because he's leading us back to trying to go back to our roots as, 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 our, as our American heritage and all of these things. And evangelical leaders are circling around him. He was invited to speak at Liberty University not too long ago at their commencement address and their president said it was the best commencement they'd ever had. The best commencement address they'd ever had. And he believes in and subscribes to a doctrine that sends people to hell every single day. Every single day. Every single day. And I was watching his show the other day and there was the president of Liberty University and there was the president of Westminster Seminary. He wrote a book that nobody would have paid attention to otherwise. And when Glenn Beck paid attention to it, it went from 498,374th on the Amazon list to top 10. And so he's willing to sit there and compromise because of money and align himself with somebody who is a Mormon. Let me tell you something right now. Just as, let me tell you something that's far dangerous. Far more dangerous. Far more dangerous than the revisionists that would rewrite our history. Far more dangerous than that is the church who would abandon hers. Far more dangerous than that. This republic was not meant to last forever. This republic will not last forever. And we might be on the edge of its death. And I mourn that. I'm not happy about that. But let me tell you something right now. The church is in far more trouble than our republic is. Because we've not set a man and set godly men and women and families on the wall to watch and say, this will not get in here. This will not get in here. I wouldn't be so reckless with my alliances to go over there and sit. You think I would ever, as a president of a seminary, a seminary and a university, decidedly Christian university, and have somebody get up there and speak who's a Mormon? You say, oh, you're being hard on Glenn Beck. I hope Glenn Beck gets saved. But what I'm saying is we in Christianity, we've lost our bearings. We've lost our way. We've lost our... Our, our prompts. We've lost our discernment. We don't have it anymore. We've gone. It's gone. It's gone. One of the early church fathers tells the story of the Apostle John. Apostle John. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. John. John. Big John. Okay? He tells the story of him going into a bathhouse in Ephesus one time and there was a well-known heretical leader, a well-known heresy purveyor, a well-known heresy teacher inside the bathhouse at the same time. And John found out he was in there and he refused to go in there because he didn't want to be seen with him. Don't attach that. Don't attach that to the nail-scarred hands. I was there. He said, Behold, your mother. He turned over the authority of his mother to me. I saw him spill his blood on Calvary. And I know and I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's but one way, and that's to the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't line me up with anybody else. Don't put me beside that. I will not do it. We're reckless. We're thoughtless about these things. The Bible is what matters. The truth of God's what matters. We need to shepherd and lead our families and our churches 
so that we are watchmen on the wall because if we're not watching, there'll be a breach. If we fall asleep at the wheel, there'll be a breach. And when there is a breach, you don't think for one minute the enemy won't exploit it. Hebrews 13, 17. Will you turn there with me? Hebrews 13, 17. This business about being watchful. You better watch out. You better watch out. You need to watch out what comes into your family. You need to watch out what you read. You need to watch what you listen to. You be mindful of that. The subtleties. I marvel as a parent. I marvel at the, as a parent at the number of times that my children get to hear that the earth is millions of years old. They could talk about virtually anything. They could do a story on ice cream. And somehow or another, they're going to involve a story on ice cream with the fact that the earth is millions of years old. It's the truth. It's ridiculous how they go about doing that. Counter that with the Word of God. Teach your children the Word of God. Make it your business to teach your children the Word of God. Make it your business. Listen, to know that Washington was a believer, to know that Thomas Jefferson was a believer, that's all well and fine. That's great. To know where these documents was forged, that's great. But if we know that without knowing who wrote this and where it was forged and the truth that we base our life on, what does it matter? Watch this. 17. Obey those who rule over you. Talking about shepherds. And be submissive. For they watch out. You see that word? They watch out for your souls as they, those who must give an account. Can I ask you? Can I say this to you? I, I wish I had my other Bible with me. I've got another Bible that I had before this one. And this one's got all this room in it right here. You see how much room is in this right here? I got It's the same identical Bible. That's just almost a full sheet of blank space right there. And this so impressed me that I filled that sheet. And I wish I had it with me this morning. I should have brought it this morning. And I looked up the definition of the word watch. The word, the Greek word from which that comes. It filled up that whole thing right there. I wish you could read it. It will wear you out to read it. It means without sleep. It means to the point of exhaustion. It means to the point of spilling your life and being willing to be spilt and poured out over diligence and vigilance over the truth. It means no rest. It means 24-7. It means to the wearing, the point of wearing you slap out. That's what that word means. Watch. We need to watch for our families. We need to watch for our church. And we need to be protective of the doctrine of the salvation of Jesus Christ. That word doctrine has fallen into a bad repute nowadays. And doctrine sounds boring. It sounds archaic. It sounds like we're beyond that. It's archaic and it's boring to everybody except God. It matters what you believe. It matters what your faith is anchored in. The Bible says, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. The way to live and overcome, as an overcoming life and not be overcome is by faith. And where does faith come from? It's a real simple definition. Does anybody care to give the de Do you know where faith comes from? What is the origin of faith? Where do we get that from? The Word of God. Where does it come from? Romans 10.17. What does it say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The reason this church is named Household of Faith Bible Church is because Pastor Dave and I knew that if we left Bible out of there, then we would make no statement about where our faith comes from. 
Muslims have faith. What's the basis of your faith? And the reason Bible is put there is because we want to know out loud and up front the basis of our faith is the Word of the living God called the Bible. And there's not another one. God said all He intended to say and it's holy enough. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. It's enough. It's complete. Listen, we need to stop the shenanigans. We need to stop listening so much to the world and its prompts and start listening to them. Did you know that I do quite a bit of reading uh, with uh, the Puritans? Uh, you can list the name, uh, names of who's who's. Books are still in print that were written 400 years ago. And you know why I do it? I do it because there's one common characteristic among every single one of them. And I'm not going to do it justice. I'm going to use some adjectives to say it, but I'm not going to do it justice. But I've never seen the beat for rank and file, unadulterated, pure, and obsessive reverence for God's Word like you see in those guys. They flat believed it and they believed it to be so important. They were willing to stake their life, their reputations, and their futures on it. We've lost sight of that. We've lost sight of that. And we better. Every revival that ever happens in the church of the living God is always the catalyst for it is always a, re a return to this. It's always a return to this. Every last time. And every time, the cause for drift is always moving away from this. We need to be watchmen and watch women on the wall.